0: Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, Attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's Attorney CPA Joe Cordell.
1: Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. We think that you will find this discussion today, Jill, I think we can say very timely. We try to bring you things that reflect probably what you're going to be confronting in the near future or the not too distant future. And we all know the economy is going through changes. We don't know exactly where it's going, but it's probably not going to continue the same upward slope. So we expect that there may be some challenges ahead, a little bit of a recession. We don't know how much. and we thought well what the best thing we can do for our clients since their budgets are so important to them in retirement a lot of you are living on pensions and and your savings through 401ks and IRAs and whatnot so we wanted to bring somebody in, some people who can talk to you from an authoritative perspective about kind of what lies ahead, and also to talk a little bit about the whole subject of estate planning or financial planning as it pertains to, to older people. So toward that end, as we infallibly do, I have to actually give credit to Jill. She's the one who manages to find marvelous guests more often than I do. So, Jill, should you? why don't you introduce our guest?
0: I would love to. We have Don Hutchinson. He's the Managing Director of Institutional Advisory Services at Gelzer Investment Management of Indianapolis. And here with him is Brett Steele. And he's the St. Louis-based institutional consultant. Uh, and you were just given that role. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Our pleasure. So, explain this. Gelzer, of course, has been around a long
1: time. But, but, until just now you've not had an office in St. Louis till so just recently.
3: Yeah, correct. We, um, we we just actually celebrated this past March, our fifty third year in business. Wow, uh, congratulations. In, <laughs> thank you. back in nineteen sixty nine We've always had clients um, really throughout the u s thirty five states as well as Europe, um, but we've always sort of centrally located our offices in Indianapolis. This is a new endeavor for us, is to open up an office, finding some really good people out there in the Midwest, and continue to sort of expand geographically. And this is our first expansion, so we're very excited to have Brett and on And you
0: expanded, what, to Wisconsin yeah. as well? We're, we're, we're
3: Right now, we are strictly offices in Indianapolis, and then Brett is our first employee outside of the state of, um, of Indiana. Okay. And you yeah. chose St.
1: Louis. Tell yeah. me why you chose St. Louis.
3: Um, you know, great community, deep heritage. A lot of history here, but it's a community very similar to Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. It's got good Midwest roots, I think. Relationships matter. Um, and I think the type of client matters, um, we, we tend to have clients that are more conservative in their stance financially, um, that sort of syncs up with, with our philosophy. And so we tend to do better work that way. So we're really excited about St. Louis. Um, and it's, um, you know, three and a half hours away. So it's, yeah, you know, not bad. It's yeah, it's very, com- so,
1: yeah. yeah, Cordell and Cordell, we opened, one of our earlier offices was in Indianapolis. So there are a lot of similarities. Uh, also a sports town.
3: Yes, yeah. so, <laughs> and you get your sports sort of complement ours a little bit. You know, we have basketball, right? You uh-huh. have hockey. You
1: know, kind of yeah, so, right. It
3: works out really well.
0: that yeah, way. Yeah, we
1: don't butt heads as much. <laughs> no. But you, you have football, which we tried. Yes. But I know. Yeah, that's
0: a whole nother show. <laughs> so,
1: so I'm curious. Uh, you have um, you have a lot of clients though who are older six over sixty. And that's one thing that, that attracted us to your firm in terms of planning and financial advice was to get your thoughts about what – first of all, what do you expect over the next year to five years maybe? And, and how are you dealing with this with your clients who are over 60?
3: Sure. Absolutely. That's a great question. So, so to that point, um, more than half of our client base are private clients, and the majority of them are in retirement years. So they're really focused on um, how their financial assets are performing, and making sure that they can have secure income throughout retirement. And obviously, the bouts of what we're seeing right now with inflation caused some problems there um, and some concern. And likewise, we think we're really at an inflection point here uh, with the economy, but yeah. more so with longer term policy, if you will. We just went through a period of time where monetary policy was really easy. Um, mm-hmm. and it actually was very interesting. It benefited folks that take a lot of risk, investors, mm-hmm. but actually hurt, savers, if you will, sort of financial Mm -hmm. repression for folks that are counting on bank accounts and CDs and bonds and what have you. So it was a difficult time for them. We think that is finally changing a little bit. We're also seeing it in the type of stocks that are working now. Uh, We're big big folks uh, in terms of quality stocks, as well as value-oriented stocks and dividend-oriented stocks. Those are really benefiting now. We're Obviously, it was all growth in speculative stocks the last 12, 13 years. So from mm-hmm. that perspective, the other side of this, when we get through this transition period, I think it's going to be a lot better for our clients, if you will, um, that are in retirement today.
1: I'm glad to hear you say that about you think there's an inflection point, because that's been kind of my thought, too. And the fact that we did this historically unprecedented thing coming out really to uh, 2008 where suddenly rates go all the way down and so rates you know as as you all know better than I do about calculating the values and and how when you have you know interest rates below 1% that it inflates the value of every asset out there including everything on the stock market so it didn't make sense to me that if you suddenly go from, say, a 1% rate, which actually was below that, to, say, 3%, not to mention if it's 4 or 5 that that doesn't have a dramatic imp- impact on the value of all the stocks because all their values reflect this this artificial reality, which wasn't, you know, couldn't endure. Mm-hmm. And so now, as you said, and, and uh, I haven't heard a lot of people say that, so I'm glad to hear you say that, is that, you know, there is a, I would call it a, a coming to reckoning, you know, where we we got to to entertain this this stimulation and artificial prosperity for a long time, and it worked, but there does appear to be an adjustment that's probably going to be fairly long term. Do you think?
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I um I ran into a, a younger gentleman in the um, the elevator at our office buildings probably two months ago or so. <laughs> and I felt really bad. I, you know, he looked sick to me, right? I mean, physically did not look well. And, and I he asked him. I said, you're doing okay? And he goes, I just got done going and seeing my, my broker. And my portfolio is down 65%. And I thought wow. to
1: myself, Lots of growth stuff. what
3: were you in, right? And he right. was in all the speculative stuff. So to your point, and it takes every generation's got to learn that. Um, we learned that back in the 2000.com bubble, if you will. And and we've been telling our clients for the last several years, these valuations don't make sense. These companies aren't earning money. Um, they're not quality, you know, they have quality balance sheets. Um, this will come to an end. And now you're seeing it. Um, unfortunately, the good news for us is our retirees, um, they're focused in, you know, we have a rising dividend strategy, focused on dividends, value strategy, those kinds of things that are holding up much, much better today. I think to your point, um, than the growth stocks, if you will, especially the speculative And
1: stocks. they weren't as juiced by the free money. No. I mean, it, the, no. the tech companies where, they weren't making anything. And technically I guess you value it at infinity mm-hmm. if you imagine what profit if it ever comes is going to be. So your your investors then were you as a company tend to be more conservative. So you didn't put a lot of people into the into the tech Sector and
3: no, we, we have we have um, you know, so Gelser has sort of three what I would say sleeves, if you will, or divisions. We have our private client group, and then we have our institutional advisory uh group.
1: What is that? Explain that,
3: yeah. Right. So, 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 what that is is we're really serving the needs of foundations, endowments, not for profits, um, private schools, what have you, really in what we call sort of the small to mid. Size part of that market, so you know five million or so is a reference point on the low end, up to typically somewhere in the ballpark at two hundred million or so. That group is underserved in our, in our opinion relative to the large, large billion dollar plus institutions, um, and and we think it really f- fits well with our service model. We tend to have a very intense service model at Gilzer, which is where we're spending a lot of time with our clients. Um, those organizations tend not to have. Um, what I would call internal resources for investments, or a lot, really, in a lot of cases, maybe one financial person within that group, because they're focused on their programming, right, and all the good things they're doing in the community, right? right? So, so from that perspective, we really, uh, we really act as almost an extension of their office in a lot of the things we do. So it's not just not just the investments, right? That's, you know, we we do that very well, but a lot of other elements to that. And, you know, we can talk about that a little bit, but that is, um, that's the difference. The nice thing is there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things that rhyme between our private client group and that small to mid-sized institutional uh, group. You know, spending policies matter for everybody, right? Whether it's an individual or or an institution. And so, um, and a lot of the planning we do right we're're we're very plan first product second if you will a Gelser so we're we are a, a registered investment advisor and a fiduciary to our clients, which means we're we do not get paid anything no commissions or anything in terms of uh, product placement but strategies are important and, so you're yeah. a fiduciary yeah absolutely. I'm glad to hear that yeah
1: um, so you don't you don't base your revenue on the products that you.
3: Yep. No, we yeah, um, we used to be a duly registered firm way back when. We switched to fee-based only, registered investment advisor, fiduciary, um, uh, essentially standard. Oh, gosh, it's been probably 10 years now or so. So, Brett, yeah.
0: what is your background?
2: Uh, my background is working with the institutional clients, like he had mentioned. So I've worked with a lot of smaller nonprofits, uh, endowments, uh, and you do see a lot of overlap there on the client side to the institutional side, a lot of our private clients are involved with these uh, different charities that are very passionate about. um, They might work as a volunteer, they might work, you know, be a member of the board. Uh, So uh, it's very interesting working with these individuals and just seeing how passionate they are, uh, and then also helping them uh, with their cash flows. And then ideally, seeing that come to fruition and uh, seeing the impact that we can. Are you a St. Louis uh, native? I am a St. Louis native, yes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Have to ask you the St. Louis question. Where'd you go to high school? Oh, so school? I'm
2: actually, I'm, I'm more St. Louis native from the Illinois side. So, from the, okay, <laughs> Metro East. Okay. Yes, yes, okay. Yes. So, St. Louis Metro. St. Louis metro. Yeah, metro. I guess I should, okay. should clarify that. And then I went to, um, Southern Illinois University down in uh, in Carbondale. I saw mm-hmm.
0: that on your bio. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Southern Illinois
2: University at Edwardsville. Okay. 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 Some similarities there. That's actually where I got kind of my interest in the nonprofit foundation side. Uh, I did an internship with our foundation at SIU when I was there. Uh, and my first job out of school was really uh, kind of in that same lines of uh, of work as well. So that, that was my first um, entry into that type of client.
0: And what do you hope to bring to the table with this new appointment?
2: Yeah, I think really, uh, you know, I had met with everybody at Gelser, uh, multiple times before I started at Gelser. So it was, uh, really a fit for, to make sure that it was a fit for me from a firm perspective, uh, and then that they believed in me as well. And I think that the culture, the values, everything's very similar. Um, in Indianapolis, they're very well respected, very involved in the community, uh, assist with multiple different philanthropic, uh charities. And I really want to kind of bring that to St. Louis as well. And as Don had mentioned, uh, you know, helping some of these smaller to mid-sized that might not have somebody on staff that can help with these investment decisions. Right. Providing um, that expertise. Yeah. Providing yeah. expertise and really helping with, you know, what we see best practices from a donor development standpoint uh, and allowing them to really get out in the, the field and do what they do best. So do,
1: does institutional include like churches as well? Yes. Absolutely. Religious
2: yes. organizations. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So we have several, several clients in, in that ilk. Um, in fact, a couple that are, um, are what I would call agnostic, but they support all religious, uh, affiliations in terms of helping them develop resources and mm-hmm. programs so they can have better reach in the community, if you will. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah. 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 So, um, when you approach then uh, developing a client base here um, uh, putting aside the, the the institutions that you'll focus on those connections as well but but how do you go about developing a, a client base here like it, the firm
2: has in Indianapolis yeah I think just items like this so getting out in the in the community um Getting that presence out there, so being uh, as involved as we can, being supportive of uh, a lot of the local uh, charities and nonprofits, uh, and just having that involvement. I think that's the main thing, um, and that's one of the main reasons why institutional as well, there's both to provide that service, but just from a firm perspective, really that philanthropic uh, DNA that's built in there uh, into Gelser. so I think being able to relay that here into St. Louis uh will allow us to get our presents. But, but y'all don't do a lot of marketing.
3: No, we're 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 doing more of it, right? Um, we but historically we we sort of focused our resources on working with clients and working on the investments and what have you, and, and less on the marketing. I think you're going to see more and more of that out of us. We you know we we hired our first uh, director of partnerships, if you will, uh, within the firm a couple of years ago. That's going to be a big play, I think, into the St. Louis market. Um, and we've hired some outside advisors to help us uh, with things like like this, if you will. It, you know, at the end of the day, it's um it's a People business, even though institutional is just as much a people business, and Brett said it, Your private, our private clients sit on those committees and those boards and what have you, um, and we care a lot. I, I meant to bring – I left it in my other car, but I meant to bring our community engagement report. I'll, I'll send it to you all, but um, it is – what I want to see my, – my vision is in five years, that community engagement report has – as many Indianapolis or Indiana-oriented things that we're involved in, as well as St. Louis, Missouri, and 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 Southern Illinois. So that's that's our goal is to bring that. It is in our DNA. Um, I I've worked with multiple firms, and and I can tell you, you know, our firm is very focused on clients first and supporting the community, not just on the me thing, you know, if you yeah. will. And I, I've seen that with other firms. So,
1: so describe yeah. the process, though, uh, focusing on your your private or your individual practice. What is the process when somebody contacts you, say that they have you know, a couple million dollars maybe accumulated in 401k or whatever it might be? They're over 60. Uh, how does how does the relationship unfold at that point? What happens at the first meeting?
3: A lot of listening, a lot of questions. We, we want to understand what the goals uh, of the client are, if you will, what they're looking to do. They're 60. They're getting close to that that maybe that decision to retire. So we want to understand um, essentially what does that look like. What does your lifestyle need to be in retirement, uh, if you will? And so we collect a lot of information because we start plan first. It's all about planning at Gels, or whether it's a individual client, uh, pre-retiree, or a, a, an institution. And then what we do is we take that information. We typically give them a, a risk, um, essentially questionnaire right out of the box. Do they too.
1: complete that before they come in?
3: No, they, they typically uh, complete that at the second appointment, if you will. Um, the first appointment is just a lot of discovery you know, yeah, and what have know. you. We do a lot of that if they're technology inclined, which most, most folks that are in that you know, baby boomer generation are. Uh, yeah. it's the other generation that sometimes is a little tougher. But um, the um, you know, we'll, we'll actually send that to them, and they just they do that online. It takes about ten minutes. Really helps inform us of what their risk you know tolerance is, and then we come and we say, okay. You have this much saved, and we look at the different buckets it's saved in, and this is what you 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 aim to, to live off of, if you will. And we have a lot of modeling software that we work with, right, to then give them some ideas of what is what does that time horizon look like, and what's the probability of success, right? And we do that through some Monte Carlo simulations. Um, we have some other stress tests we use cash flow planning, and, and there's a lot of tax implications to it. I, is, I, I don't want to get wonky here with, uh-huh, right. with all the inputs, but the inputs Sorry. are important. And right now, one of the big inputs is, is looking at inflation. Right? Mm-hmm. Might be a little different here for, for the front end of the next, you know, maybe 10 years or so. And then we, every year, Gelser comes out with capital market assumptions, which are what we think the returns are going to look like over the next 10 years. And those inputs are important because the next 10 years, in our opinion, is going to be a lot different than the last 10. And, and the biggest, we think, the biggest risk in retirement is those right before and right after you retire. We really want to try to f- avoid those those big drawdowns, right? You, yeah. You don't want to retire right into a bear market, and and we want to we want to be cognizant of that.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, and that that's that's one thing that I don't think is made clear enough to people whose timeline is shorter, that that while it's true that, for example, if you were to do monthly investing, a monthly investing plan in which you ride it up and down, uh, that works out in the long run, the average, uh, but for people who you know, don't have a horizon that long, then, then as you point out, the math is hard to recover if they start out in a bear market. And even if things go up later, the math are just, it's difficult to recover. And, and I think that, um, that some people are going to be more inclined to reach for security and something like annuities and whatnot. And there are strong opinions on that topic. Mm -hmm. Um, some advisors hate them, some like them. I like the fact that you're not in a position where you're selling a product. So it's one advantage. And the reason I'm I'm a huge fan of people who approach financial planning, as you do, is that, you know, your clients want to count on the best advice. And when Mm -hmm. the incentives are wrong, you know, when the incentives are in this direction and the client's interests are in this direction, you know, it's not a positive thing. You want to be incentivized in the same direction. And and so I worry about whether the, the discussion of annuities that becomes so popular with people over 60 uh, is really preventing, presenting a full picture. What are your thoughts on it?
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think from, from a product perspective, I think people, especially right now, the uncertainty, they're looking for a silver bullet in a product, and there isn't one, if you will. There just isn't. Uh, the solution is in the plan, right? So our advice is, let's revisit the plan. I a client the other just the other day said well oh, this inflation maybe Social Security will be insolvent and in then you know in in the mm-hmm. near future right okay let's let's go back to your plan and let's just take Social Security right out of it what's the probability of success 86 percent that's for us, that's good, right? You're in a good place, right? Yeah. So, so we focus there, right, versus um, looking at the annuities or those kinds of things. If it makes sense, in particular, uh, from an estate plan perspective, some some life insurance products make a ton of sense, right? We'll, we'll yeah. suggest that. But like you said, we're not incented to push that. So it's all th- those products that come into play, if you will, are all based on what does the plan say?
1: You but you know what I think of of... variety of things that can go wrong over the next 10 or 15 years, the top of the list wouldn't be getting rid of Social Security. I mean, I I worry that that now there's this indifference about government expenditures because the assumption is you just print more money. And so I, I think maybe inflation could be a problem that your Social Security may not be worth much. But that wouldn't be the top of my concern.
3: We sometimes have to, you know, appease clients. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're right. Yeah, you know, client's boss. Right, that's yeah. right. I hear you. So um, so whenever you're putting together a plan then, is it is it common for it to include clients working or do you – do you, and do you look for passive investments versus investments that are kind of actively managed?
3: Yeah. Um, I think in terms of uh, the client continuing to work, you mean, at some point? Yeah. yeah. We – the great, great thing about our uh, software, if you will, is it allows us to identify some levers, if you will, and we can turn them on or off. And one of the levers we could turn on is let's say you continue to work part-time for five uh-huh. more years, right? Um, what does that do – to the, you know, to the terminal value in the plan over, over the, you know, your time horizon, your retirement time horizon versus what if we turn that off? We just had a client the other day said, I might work another two years, three years, four years, or I might just want to call it quits, right? Well, let's look at all four of those scenarios, right? And what does that do? So we, we can, we can do that in that that modeling. Um, In terms of active and passive, we're very middle of the road with that. Um, Here's what I would tell you just in terms of shortness. um, We think active management is really pays off in markets like this, right? Yeah. Um, And so we're typically weak markets, active management is better. In upward sloping markets where everything's doing well, it's tough to keep up with passive investment. What would you say
0: Mm -hmm. to someone that's thinking that had planned on retiring this year And with inflation skyrocketing, I mean, would you say, let's hold off a little bit? I mean, asking both of you guys.
2: Yeah, I think the one thing that uh, you had mentioned, and he talked about with the inflection point, is the Fed is starting to make moves right now. And so we just saw an hour ago that they raised interest rates by 0.75. That is good for the saver in the long run. And so uh, the portion of the of your money that's in those bonds, um, if you delay your retirement, then it's gonna be putting off more income. And so that portion of your portfolio that was just a year ago not yielding much at all um, is now gonna give you at least some. Um, so that's gonna be able to offset your uh, expenses more than what we're seeing right now. Okay. Uh, and so you won't have to take as much risk in the uh, in the equity markets. Yeah, I, w- I would tell you, um, it's
3: all based on your situation. So go run the plan again, right? Update the plan and see right. if you can do that. That really is critical. There's some folks that have amassed enough resources that even with a tough economy, our modeling takes into account a, you know, some pretty, some pretty heavy stress tests. They're going to be just fine. So what we're doing with clients is that, that are right there, I have one in particular client that's been sort of planning the last three or four years. We just updated their plan and it looks good. They're, they're going to be okay. The volatility we're seeing is well within the bounds of what we, you know, what we modeled in our stress tests. There's other folks I say the biggest lever, just generally speaking, if you want general advice, the longer you work, the better you're off you are, right, in retirement. True. Just, it might be better of, for yeah. your health. Yeah. Even. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. well yeah. yeah. Yeah, mental health. <laughs> for some yeah, people, for sure. yeah. yeah. Um, I, we have some clients where you probably need to get back to work because you're watching TV too much.
1: Yeah, you slow down, <laughs> you come to a stop and— it's yep. often not good. Uh, so, as you consider the range of options, you know a number of assets, like particularly if you do what there's a the, the treasury bill that has the cola, you know tax or inflation adjusted tips. I think they're called. Uh, do what are your thoughts about that sort those? That class of investments.
3: Yeah. So, so it's really interesting. We were actually just talking about this a little bit. Um so the the biggest question I've been getting lately is what, what are these I-bonds? You know, nobody's talked about I bonds in 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 decades, right? Because yeah, inflation right. Well, hasn't an been issue. an issue, right? Um and they're really interesting because of the um, the semi-annual adjustment to inflation, right? So so now there's a lot in the in the press, uh, the I bonds are are set to pay, I think 9.6 percent or something to that effect. Wow. Right. Coming up. That's great, right? Well, you you're limited to 10, thousand dollars investment in an i-bond so so that's not gonna i mean that's nice but no it's not gonna move the needle too much right um so a lot of people look at tips you know treasury inflation protected securities and um we were just talking about it some of these investments that seem really good there's more than one source of risk and return in the investment and tips if you buy a 10-year bond right or a 10-year tip you're doing well in terms of it adjusts, right, for inflation. That part's doing great. That one source of return is 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 doing just fine. The second source of return is you have interest rate risk in a 10-year bond. And as interest rates have been moving higher, you're getting hit, you know, that bond is getting hit in value because of interest rates. So a 10-year tip year to date's down nine percent. So what's being
1: yeah. adjusted, that's an important point you're yeah. making. I hope yeah. people catch this. So whenever you hear about an inflation adjusted treasury bill. You think, oh, it's government insured, which is true. It's not going, I mean, it'll be paid. Um, But the point you made is the the adjustment is not to the rate of interest, it's to the value of the bond. Right. That's That's an important point. Yep. And and most people buy it for the interest rate to be for the income to be adjusted. Right. And you're only pointing out that it assures that there will be an adjustment of the value of the face value when you get it.
3: That's correct. And you still have interest rate risk in that bond, just like you do on a ten-year any ten-year government bond. So that's that's where that you, you get hit there. I think um, five-year tips are a little bit better, right? So you you got to just be aware of that. That's why I I mean I I just I say this because I think it's important. You talked about active management, but um, I think passive management, in some ways, has made some people sort of sloppy or lazy. They don't know. I mean, I would say, you know, what you eat, you got to know what you eat, right? What are the ingredients in what you eat? Same with you know, all these financial products that you know sort of get pushed into the you know the the mainstream. And and seniors in general get pushed a lot of product, right? You walk into the banking center, and you know they're they're trying to sell you something. Really important to understand what is that ingredient. I do think that is the value of having an advisor. That's very thoughtful and really understands what are the ingredients in that product, if you will. Does, yeah, our our industry's got a lot of professional shoppers out there now. Yeah, and they really don't understand, you know, what what is really driving the returns and in, in, in the value of that security.
1: But let me say a couple things about the difference between active and passive investment, but but then toss it back to you guys to say a little more because I, the average person when they're hearing these phrases, they they're not really sure what it is and and. You know, at one time, I guess there wasn't passive. That, that came around the 70s or so when people developed the idea of indexes where you you essentially buy the S&P or you buy the Dow. And it's passive, meaning that all you do is buy something that reflects the total value of, of all those stocks. And it doesn't require any day-to-day management. And so there's all sorts of indexes now where you can kind of put your money on autopilot and, and the theory is, and leave it there, and you don't have anybody reaching in on a particular day and saying, I think we should sell DuPont, and I think we should buy Bear," or those decisions, they're not made. So, that's, that's active management is where you have somebody really looking at each company and deciding, let's buy this company, let's sell that company. So, you have people in your organization that are capable of doing active management which a lot of organizations don't even have people who can do that because it does mean you hire analysts and you have people on the payroll whereas if you're just doing index fund you know you open up a shop and you buy an index and for your clients and you know in fairness in defense of that I, some indexes have done as well as sure. or be, during some periods of time they've done better than active management so I don't want to suggest active management's always better but like you said there are times when active management pays more than other times. Yeah.
3: And for your clients, um, in, or for your audience, excuse me, in particular, passive bond indexes are, we do not think are appropriate, right, if you will. Oh. Um, and so yeah. you get a lot, you get a lot of um, concentration in those indexes. You get sometimes, you know, the larger the issue, the more you own in those indexes, you get some junk in those indexes that aren't quality. So we think actively managed bond portfolios or a really good, well-run mutual fund portfolio that's no load. Right. Uh, and has good uh, – a low expense ratio is, is much more appropriate um, in, in bond land, if you will. Yeah. Um, and then we think uh, right now I – was, I was actually having breakfast a week or so ago with one of the directors of a large pension fund. And, and once again, it rhymes with, with private client. We we talked about how the S&P 500, you're right, it's outperformed, right? It's been tough as active Mm -hmm. managers to outperform that. But it is so top-heavy now and so concentrated because we've had 13 years of people pouring money into this index, and the way that index is constructed – the biggest stocks or the biggest companies become a bigger part of it, right? And so it's it's as top-heavy as we've seen since the early 2000s, which is not a good thing. So we're, we I told this this director of this pension fund, I said, "You probably make sense just buy an S&P 500 equal weight, which is." Every company is the exact same weight versus uh, um, what we call market cap weighted or heavier weighted. That might just be the recipe for just a a little bit better performance the next 10 years.
1: And and again, I'm I'm taking time to explain a little bit is is that – so Apple, uh, Google, Tesla, I mean these companies are worth so much that they dominate. If you end up buying, for example, the S&P – Maybe thirty percent of your money went into four or five big comp, big tech companies who had already been pushed to the, yeah. you know, to the limit in terms of their valuation. They're just sky high, and and we're most vulnerable right. for what's coming. and And so your point is, in a case like that, you don't want to just buy an index. and And even going a step further, it it may make sense to have somebody who's a smart analyst to go through and. In the old-fashioned way, Mm -hmm. and look at companies.
3: You're you're right because the S and P 500. If if you take those top 10 names, the valuation of those top 10 names in the S and P 500 is over 30 times earnings. Right? If you strip that out and just look at the rest of the index, it's actually very reasonable, 16 times earnings. Right? So you really, right? I think you're at a point now where you sort of want to underweight or. Carve those out and really focus on the stuff that's more appropriately valued. Yeah. We also said, I mean, you know, energy became 2% of the SP 500 sometime last year, you know, earlier last year or something. Um, that's too low. We yeah. still have an economy that needs, you know, <laughs> some um, sort of energy, energy. Yeah, whether right, it's fossil right, fuels yeah. or wh- right. whatever, or, or solar or whatever yeah. it might be. But we, you do need energy and, and we're not ready. To, as much as we want to bridge to, you know, a lower carbon footprint, we're not quite there yet, right? We want to do it. We're getting there. But y- y- this is why we're seeing, you know, gasoline prices, 5 $6, you know, a gallon um, is because of this exact reason. And, so, and
1: this, yeah. is, this is part of the reason why people don't often realize why they need financial planners is that is that they often think, well, I'm just going to buy an index and that's safe. But if they knew what you just said, if somebody's told them in advance, but you realize you're not really diversifying, you're putting like 40% of your money in in a handful of companies and they're all with huge, you know, we use the word PE ratio, but huge multiples based on expectations of earning a ton of money in the future that may not, probably will not happen. So people don't know this and, and without paying a financial advisor, let's... Um, at some point I want to talk about this maybe we should shift the gear now um, and talk a little bit of the way the compensation works. People are often confused whether they should you know go with somebody who tells them that they're free you know when in fact they're not free they're selling you they're selling you a product and and they're getting paid through the product which I'd much rather know how somebody on the other side of the table is making money rather than you know wonder how they made it and uh, and how much it was so Talk about your your compensation program or
3: yeah, it's it's system. very it's very simple. It's fee based, so um, there's only one fee that we get paid, and it is a percentage of what we manage on your behalf. There's no financial planning fees. There's no, as I said, no commissions or any kinds of embedded fees. So, as an example, if if you were to come to us and and um, uh, have two million dollars in assets that we were going to manage, um, that fee typically is one percent, and that's it. 1% of that. If we do a good job and, you know, the value rises, we get a pay raise, right? Sure. If we do a bad job and the value goes down, we get a pay cut.
1: But it stays two, uh, 1%. Yeah, and
3: then we have breakpoints as, as as it goes higher. So we have another breakpoint um, at the next $2 million and then thereafter, what have you. And on the institutional side, it gets a little bit more complex in terms of those sometimes are very competitive bid-type
1: processes. So it's a little different. But though. so is there active yeah. management in that? In that one percent? Yeah.
3: So so that's a great question because okay, so let's confuse everybody, right? Is, is, <laughs> yeah. is now it's confusing you, already. You, you yeah, exactly. You if you only if you pay us the one percent and then all we do is buy mutual funds for you, there's an embedded fee in those mutual funds, right? So now all of a sudden your all in cost is much more than the one percent,
1: right? This is an important question yeah. for anybody giving you yeah. Advice or yeah. you know, pur- pur- purporting yes. to be a financial planner.
3: Yeah, hundred percent. What we do because we have an investment management arm. Our roots are in asset management. You give us two million. We have a core equity style. So you own the you own Bristol Myers or Merck or whatever it might be, Microsoft, what have you. So you have an individual equity portfolio and individual bond portfolio. So there isn't fees associated with those, right? And then you'll have some mutual funds around it or some, you know, some passive funds around it for international or small But you're
1: saying everything's captured. All the costs are captured yeah. in the 1%. Yeah,
3: that's right. And then um, and, and what we do, in particular on the institutional side, because board members have uh, fiduciary responsibility, we do with our individual clients too, is we do a fee analysis once a year. We want them to be – we want to be completely transparent of this is what you pay us. And then, if we are using any funds or ETFs, this is what those embedded fees are. This is your all-in fee to, to, to essentially have your assets
1: managed. So, just for a sense of perspective, um, what is somebody commonly paying uh, in fees when they think that they're paying nothing for a brokerage firm, for, a, for a mutual fund, even a no-load? They they think no-load means there are no costs associated with the investment. That's impossible. That's right. Yeah. yeah,
3: that's right. So so your typical advisor is probably charging somewhere around 1%. We see with the warehouses or the brokerage firms, sometimes it's a little more than that, right? And then some are a little bit less, but just 1% is general. But then the the, the portfolio is chock full of mutual funds that have embedded fees and, and what have you. So you're typically seeing probably something closer to 2% in a lot of cases. And that's that's too high. That's too high in our opinion. It was It was easy when you know when bonds were yielding five six percent and the stock markets doing double digit returns, nobody really paid attention to fees. But as as all those returns have compressed and what have you, it's much more important because that eats away at your you know your retirees you know their their net income, if you will. Yeah. So you really want to be careful about the fees that are you're being paid. And I think what you you want to aim for is something in in the two million dollar range. You want to aim for something all in, something that's closer to like one and a quarter or something like that, but not 2%. And, you know, we hear all the time about cryptocurrency. What are
0: your thoughts about investing in cryptocurrency? I'm going to ask both of you. Well,
2: that's a hot topic right it now. It really is. <laughs> yeah, so a general overview from the firm perspective is that cryptocurrency is just very speculative. So uh, we don't have any cryptocurrency in any of our clients' portfolios. Um if they do invest in cryptocurrency, uh, we really try to have that only be a small portion of what they're going to invest in and have the understanding that that might be money that you completely lose. Right, um, so, right. So uh, it's a very risky asset. Um, and that—that's kind of really what our thoughts are. It's—it's it's more speculation than, um, a stable portion of. It's what not you're a good
0: solid from.
3: investment, no, then. No, no. Jo, Yeah, and, and, and Joe said it. You know, the client's the boss, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, it's their money. But we're not going to let them hang themselves. Uh, and we're going to educate them on that. And crypto is exceptionally speculative, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, if a client insists that they want to do something, we just say this is like your money. If you're going, you know, to to Vegas or what have you, you might you might have an asset that's permanently impaired. It's you know, it, it it essentially goes to zero. So be very cognizant of that, if you will. And so we typically say if you're gonna do it, we're not recommending it, but you, you you put that sort of on the side if you will. Yeah.
1: And and you know, and that that whole thing about crypto is such a fascinating discussion to me. And and I feel that to some extent maybe it's a product of age, though I know some of its advocates are older than I am. But I still feel that there's a little bit of a perspective that I bring to the table, which may or may not be helpful. It may be helpful, but it may not be. But the idea that, that you create this thing for which there – it seems to solve a problem for which there's there's not a need. And, and um, I think of the fact that you have something called Bitcoin that appears to dominate value, but it is just – it's just a declaration by its creators and an affirmation by others in the market who are willing to buy it that, that we, we're going to assign value to this. Mm-hmm. You know, It's just like a fiat command except by the market, but it's a fiat command that we're going to decide this. It doesn't have a history like gold, I understand, You know, uh, a million years of history valued by humanity and used as a medium of exchange, et cetera. So I understand why that lingers as having some value. But crypto just mystifies me, and, and yet there are people who are so certain yes. that it's going to be around. And, and I just I don't – you, you have the regulatory risk. Mm-hmm. No government is going to allow – if people who are fans of crypto believe that, that you know, by having crypto, they can get around all the laws of government, that, that will never happen. No government will allow that to happen. No. So we know that, that it's going to be regulated in some form. And if they're saying no, we just want digital because we think digital is more convenient. Well, governments are, we know are going digital. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's coming whether you like it or not. And the U.S. is looking at it closely and doing studies, so we'll have a digital currency. I just don't see the need for this thing, and it and it's what protects it from a thousand other similar cre- uh, blockchain creations. Right. I, you know,
3: it, it's interesting you say that because you know. Uh, Cryptocurrency was was invented to try to actually ease transactions, right? You know, to to make transactions easier and and almost as you said, a store of value, if you will, a medium of exchange, um, which would mean there would be some stability to it. It's the exact opposite of that. And what it's become is not that, it's become essentially a speculative investment, if you will. And I I had a actually had a client that was trying to sell some real estate. um, and, and it was interesting. The the gentleman that wanted to buy it would only do it in Bitcoin. What? Right? Yeah, and that um, is interesting. Yeah, it, it is interesting. But so so the <laughs> the transaction took six months. <laughs> Because it's not easy to, you know, and, and to your point, there's not regulation. There's no financial intermediary um, that's going to allow a essentially an insured closing, right, of real estate to happen vis-a-vis a cryptocurrency. So it a- ended up being... 10 times more difficult than just settling in, you know, good old-fashioned dollars, right. if you will. So I, I don't see it serving the original purpose that everybody sort of purported it to be, right, if you will. Um, blockchain, the technology is interesting, and that's different than I think yeah. the, the underlying technology. that The applications of that are fascinating oh, to me. Oh, it's great, yeah. Yeah, but that's different than what we're talking about with cryptocurrency. I mean, I, your audience, um, I, they, they'd have to have exceptionally excess financial resources to say, yeah, I think that's something— you know, you should be
2: speculating, and in, if you will. And <laughs> as
1: we see here today, it's around twenty thousand. Is that right?
2: Is that what I asked? Yeah, last yeah it was peaked around sixty thousand for Bitcoin, and then just look—yesterday it was down to twenty thousand. So yeah,
1: so it's
2: taken a huge fall.
1: Time.
3: I don't know how you value it. You know, there's there's no underlying cash flow. There's no you know income to it. But but the the folks that follow the market that I you know sort of casually listen to say you're probably looking at something around seven eight thousand. So there's a long way to go if they're, if they're correct. Uh, once again, it's not a market we follow real closely.
1: But. So I, I'm saying what a lot of older, what say, some sages have said and what you all have heard, and Buffett and others have said similar things. Um, but these old guys, you know, maybe are missing something, but they're universal in, almost in saying, you know, this, this there's no need for this. It's, it's a fad. We've had fads before you know, the Holland tulips. Uh, so we've had crazy fads, and this is going to be a fad. And I don't know if Buffett's still saying that. He said that early on. And and to me, I, I, that still strikes me as seeing, seeming probable. But then I listen to some very smart guys, and you do too, on like CNBC, and they'll talk about, you know, the fact that, look, I heard some guy yesterday on, uh, I don't know if it was Jim Cramer's show, but he was saying, yep, whatever happens, crypto's down, but one thing's clear. Crypto's here to stay. And in it I, I'm convinced that maybe I'm missing something. Maybe it'll be around and and still be around in twenty years.
3: Yeah. I, I, I you know, I maybe I'm not smart enough to to, to understand this, but I've been doing this for twenty five years now and I've seen all these you know, every bull market ends with these there's always a couple speculative asset classes, right? And and if you look back, it's going to be crypto, SPACs, or another area, Spacks. if you will. Um, so so you're starting to see the you know the, this bubble implode, right? And those things go down. Um, I always say version 2.0 is always better than version 1.0, if you will. And so there could be some there could be something in 2.0 in terms of crypto that makes sense, right? Once regulation comes you know comes into play and 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 there's some guardrails put up or what have you that. Might make some sense. Um, you remember .dot com one that ended in tragedy oh, for most companies, yeah, right? But now, now there's some really good, you know, internet based companies. .dot com two ended up being more, much more sustainable and much more profitable. So um, maybe there's another version, you know, coming, if you will. I'll wait for two <laughs> yeah.
1: So, so if you're making, if you're, and I realize that that you don't have a crystal ball, but so when you when you think about what the in is likely to happen with inflation. Um, do you see the Fed uh, becoming more determined? I mean, we do have this three-quarter point in 0.75 basis points going up. I mean, do you see that Powell is going to become more committed to get ahead of the inflation? Or do you see continued timidity where where maybe we're going to have inflation for a couple of years? Yeah, what do you I, think?
3: I think today was a, a real good signal that they're getting serious about it, right? Um, 75 basis points with, it looked like in his comments, most likely another 75 next month, right? Um, so I think they're trying to tackle it now. Right? Um, obviously, I think we all agree behind the curve. We all know what the roots of this were, which was we didn't have a playbook for the, a pandemic, right? And so we thought we needed to give out a lot more fiscal stimulus and monetary you know, stimulus, if you will. We did too much. That was the root of it. And then then you get uh, supply chain bottlenecks and people spending money, right? And, And that's where we're at today. We do think um, you have to feed inflation, and we're not feeding it anymore. We're in a QT world. We're in a rising rate world. So we do think we're, we're – I don't know if we're at peak or we're close to peak, but we think it's going to start to come down. I think the best-case scenario is you get 5% by the end of the year and 4% sometime next year. We're not going back to one5 or 2% anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that's what they target is too. But those days where you know we were worried about deflation, um, that's mm-hmm. we're not going to see that for some time.
1: So. Yeah. So you you would though expect the inflation to cool down by the end of next year. Yeah.
3: Yep. That's yeah. our that's our forecast right now. Just given the fact that we've just you know all the, all the stimulus programs have expired uh, for the most part. There's some things still out there like the student debt and stuff like that. Right. But, but the um, the and then most of the inflation, um, I think you know from our perspective the bottlenecks will change as the pandemic eases and you know China comes back on. I, the administration's looking at potentially some changes to the tariffs. I think the tariff stuff ahead of the pandemic fed into some of the supply chain issues, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're starting to rethink maybe some of that as well. So we'll see. But yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. These, um, these macro trends you wonder about over the next five to 10 years and and among them, is, as you mentioned, is you know what what is the course of globalization, and yeah. and it looks like you know we globalized the first 20 years, and now we're some say we're going to de-globalize. we're going to disengage, and um, that means more costs and less efficiencies, and some would say that there's kind of a built-in inflation. There's an interesting argument by a couple of academics. Um, who had written a book called the coming, uh, the great demographic upheaval, I think was the name mm-hmm. of it. Anyway, um, it's a book in which, uh, and it's much talked about. And one guy's from London school of economics. And he says that population trends, uh, coupled with the deglobalization, which he thinks is not going to stop. He thinks it's going to continue for various reasons. And he, uh, he points to changes in workforce into the aging sector that that all these things together are going to require that that prices go up and that there will be he's not talking about runaway inflation but he's just saying that you know we've seen deflation for the last 20 years and that you know and explain those forces were very predictable you know we had the wall coming down and the whole western europe becoming available as a market so all these wonderful things, China was coming on board. He said that has played itself out. And now, you know, we've peaked on those favorable trends. And now we're gonna see the other side of those trends. And I guess if you're if you're looking at something like that, you can you can take the model of your firm, your software. So if you had a client who comes in and says, you know, I believe that argument. I don't I think there's probably going to be inflation on average the next ten years of Five six percent, say six percent. You can plug a number in, and and you just adjust the plan based on your client's particular expectation.
3: Yeah, it. it I mean, what that? Yes, we we do. We we actually have some some additional software that's sort of interesting, um, called hidden levers. But we can sort of model an economic regime like that, like a, almost like a stagflation kind of regime, like a '70s you know style, um, and show clients what. What might you know occur with their portfolio given that kind of um, that, that kind of uh, period of time, if you will? Um, so that's that's one element we can do, and then we can also plug in, like you said, six percent inflation. That's not our ten-year forecast, but but right. let's say we did that. What that means to uh, a retired client might be a little different. I, I'm spending a lot of time with clients saying. You know, the the CPIU might not be your inflation, right? You know, everybody, yeah. you know, because yeah. early in you know, early in retirement, you travel, you know, you go out to sure. eat, you're active, you're and, and those are higher components of your inflation. And then as you get uh, older, it, medical care becomes a bigger part of it, right? You know, and you slow down on a lot of those things. And and we have a lot of real life examples where we see the expenses come down quite a bit later in retirement, right? Uh, outside of the medical side of it, so so you sort of have to. You sort of have to, and what we spend a lot of time with is l- telling our clients, okay, what did, it, what is it, what does that living expense look like year to year? Are you seeing it really go up, or are you not seeing it go up? You drive less, right? So your used car prices might don't affect you as much, yeah. right? If you're not driving as much, not so spending the, as much on gas. Yeah, so so that's why that revisit the plan, and I and I keep saying that, but that's really important because I, I had a conversation just this week with with a gentleman who retired a couple years ago and things look good but he's nervous as everybody is and and I said let's go back is are you think are you spending more he goes no i said are you are you starving he goes no i mean everything's good i'm like then then maybe your inflation isn't the same as somebody else's inflation i i don't i own a home i have a fixed mortgage right so the costs of that are not going up right it's a fixed mortgage and i'm not renewing a lease every year so i'm not feeling the rent you know the rent's going up now having somebody come and work on something or going to, you know, Home Depot and buying something that, that, you know, that, those things are going up, but, but that's a, so I would say it's a little different. You got to sort of look at inflation in terms of your terms, if you will. And we've done that on the institutional side as well. Um, educational organizations for, for a long time have had what's called the Heapy, which is the higher education price index. They don't follow the CPIU. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's really interesting because, well, and for years, you would have essentially you know tuition costs going up five, six, seven percent, and that was during the period of time where inflation was one, one and a half percent. So education expenses were really high, medical expenses were high. But man, you could find cheap goods anywhere, right? right. And, uh, it was yeah. and yeah. so that has sort of shifted a little bit. But we look at uh, in a lot of times in spending policies and planning, we look at, your inflation, right, or the organization's inflation, which should be a lot different. A lot of organizations are struggling right now because salaries and wages are going up. Yeah. And that's tough, right? And meanwhile, not-for-profits are doing really good work in the community, which with maybe, you know, their their base is folks that are sort of food insecure, right, or paycheck insecure. Um, They're going to be coming and needing more help. Because you know gas prices at five dollars, and you it's know the like cost trickle of these down things, effect. Yeah, yeah. It, re- it affects that group, that cohort, a lot quicker than it does, you know, um, folks that are at the a higher socioeconomic right. you know, part of things. So, yeah,
1: and yeah. and it, you're right. If you can take out, um, if you can be in a position where the energy costs are not going to impact you at least directly too much, yep. people are buying cheaper cars. You say you can get a car. <laughs> it's crazy mm-hmm. i mean wh- who would have thought you could make money selling a used <laughs> car for more than the new ones were selling for but yeah so but but if someone for example would extend their miles per gallon by 2 to 3 times mm-hmm. then that that's going to more than offset the additional costs of gasoline right now which now was over five bucks a.
3: I Yeah, it is. And, and the car I have, they want you to put 92, 93 in there, right? And so I'm putting 87. I go to AutoZone and I buy a little fuel treatment for $4. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's saving me some money. And my, my dad was very proud of me. You know, he's an engineer. He thinks that way. Yeah. Um, my kids were laughing at me, but that's, you know, that's the kind of thing you have to sort of get creative with, right? Well, yeah. yeah.
1: And, so. and, and, you know, um, the other element of the CPI which uh, the core excludes energy and food. So food, you can't, you know, you're going to get tagged with food. But, but after those two, the next largest component, and it's, of course, the housing costs. And as you point out, people who are in a house, they've paid for most of it, which many of our people have, then that definitely is something that, that wouldn't affect them as much. But I heard that, I read that 42% of the CPI, of the increase is attributable to the three factors of food, housing, and energy. So if you can manipulate those in some way, food's the least, but you can, I mean, you know, some people are not going out as much. Uh, Yeah, it's, I mean, if if you're counting on travel, if you're retired- Three years ago,
3: right? And you're counting on to travel a lot early in retirement. It's pretty frustrating because you, you had a pandemic, you couldn't travel, right? And now I am if I've been checking flight prices just to the East Coast, and it's it's unbe- to fly a family of four is it's unreal, right? You know, so you feel bad for yes. those folks who have been sort of working their whole lives and want to travel. So that's that's the one area I would say is is a little is is tough on folks, right? Is that 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 airfare kind of thing travel costs. So
1: one thing that that I wanted to, I want to get just a quick sense of Gelsler before we or Gelsler before we leave. Mm-hmm. Is um, what is the ownership arrangement of the firm? Yeah, it, it's based in, of course, Indianapolis. But go ahead. Yeah,
3: yeah no. So we're we're 100 independent. So uh, we're not affiliated with banks, insurance companies, or private equity. Um, okay. We're actually an ESOP, and it's pretty rare. Oh, in the, really? Yeah, pretty rare in the um, in the RAA world. But um, the employees own a good chunk of Gelser, right? And that's, we think that's the ultimate inclusion, if you will, um, is to, is for everybody to have some ownership. So, so if, if you work at Gelser for a year, you are, um, you are a participant in the ESOP. So we, we really, really think that's a, a real uh, differentiator for us. And and everybody thinks more like
1: an owner then. Yeah. 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 That is interesting. How long has it been in ESOP?
3: So, uh, back in the early 2000s and, um, uh, don't, don't, quote me on this, but Don Gelzer uh, at the time, who since passed, um, was, was really wanted. I mean, the reason he started Gelzer was the firm he was with in 1969, he asked for some ownership and they said no. And so he walked across the street, opened up Gelzer. That's the story. And he wanted to develop that and also get some liquidity, obviously, as a
1: succession plan. So uh, it was opened up in the early 2000s. And that was about when he retired or did he hang around? No,
3: he hung around. Um, I, I got to, I've been there 15 years. I got to work with Don. He was sort of part-time at that point for a couple years, but um so he's he's been gone. Greg Gelzer, his son, is the CEO and he he took over for for Don when he retired.
1: I see. Yeah. So that's an interesting model. I think it it's good for um client service too.
3: Yeah. I, I think it is. I think the independence, it's really hard right now for for a lot of firms to orchestrate a succession plan, you know, and um, you know, I think we've done a really good job that way and we're hiring You know, Brett, great people like Brett um, is the next you know sort of the next generation so
1: we're really excited about that and you'll be going to other cities after St. Louis you expect
3: yeah we're we, you know 53 years we're in our first city so we don't move real <laughs> fast just yeah. Hold our breath. yeah that's right <laughs>
1: another um, 53 years and...
3: yeah but yes i think that that is the is the goal um is to continue to expand but we we do things very methodically and carefully so, so. you're not you're not yeah.
1: set on a national plan in other words th- this isn't no. the first step of a multi
3: no no, and I, you know, that, you know, if if, if I would have answered, hey, we, you know, private equity owns us, they would push for something like that, right? Yeah, you know, they big, would. Yeah, big aggregation. That's not our goal. So.
0: Well, we're glad you decided to expand in the Gateway City.
2: So where will you be officing? Yeah, so right now I'm working remotely. Um, okay. And so I'll meet with most clients at their um, place of business uh, for the most part uh, until, um, I guess, if we grow, we might eventually have a brick and mortar here. Uh, so that's kind of the the plan going forward. We're,
3: we're looking forward to Brett getting his first client. And then we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, then we'll, we'll then, be looking for lease then, uh, then office you'll space. Then
2: you talk about office, <laughs> <That's> right, right. <laughs> in that order.
3: That's right,
1: that's right. Well, there's perks yeah.
0: to working from home.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I can just tell you that, and this is, this is kind of off the point we're wrapping up here, just to comment on the whole remote working thing. I mean, we're dealing with it as a law firm. I, our attorneys expect it now. So we just – I had a lunch meeting with the partners and we're – you know, we talk about, you know, how do we keep clients as happy. But I really think that while there may not be a snapback to what there was before, I think that we're going to come a good distance back. And I know uh, people who own office buildings will be glad to hear that. <laughs> but it, it's in very small ways. I mean think about whenever you've talked to professionals – um, if you've talked to a lawyer lately or you've talked to anybody. I was talking to an architect yesterday. And so I'm on the phone. We're having a Zoom meeting. Now, we had to have a Zoom meeting because he's in Asheville. So we're having this – or he's in Asheville? Hilton Head. So we're, we're having this meeting. And, and so uh, there's something that we wanted. We wanted to look at a previous floor plan for this laying out this renovation. And he says, well, he says – and you can see he's at home dog and (laughs) kids. He says, well, you know, I don't have that. I can't do that now. He says, I'm not in the office. Um, and you know, that kind of, as a customer, I mean, it's not as if his prices went down and, and I think that, that consumers are going to demand that there be, that all of us as professionals go back and it's going to be hard for lawyers. I can tell you, you know, our lawyers right now, it's going to be very difficult for us to, to get them to come back into the office the way they used to. So I don't know. We may end up someplace in between. This has nothing to do with you. I'm just, uh, th- this thought is I on think, my think,
3: mind. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I mean, I, I gave up a tie a couple of years ago, which I thought I never would. And now it's, you know, remote work. And so things are changing now, from when I That may not come back.
1: <laughs> yeah, not. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that will for a long time, given the younger generation today. Yeah, right. they're casual. They're casual. Much more. Yeah. But you're right. You can do so many things remotely and you can do it effectively when you plan it. So, uh, but you'll be living here.
2: Correct. Yes, yeah, Yeah. So my previous uh, firm, I had worked remotely for the last five years as well, prior to the pandemic. Before and, it was cool. before, yeah, <laughs> before a lot before, of people Before it did was it. fashionable, um, yeah. So I have kind of a whole office built out. Um, clients were nationwide. So about 50% of the time, uh, we were visiting clients. So Zoom has benefits because you have maybe 10 people on a board. Uh, it, logistically is easier to, to meet that way. Um, but as he had mentioned, as Don mentioned, you know, relationships, I think it's very important to still meet in person. Uh, yeah. And a so, cup of
1: coffee and, and right, so yeah.
2: that we'll still be very focused on that. And, and a lot of our institutional clients expect that, I think at least, um, sometimes, you know, yeah, yeah, at least once a year yeah. at the minimum. Um,
3: I'd rather take, you know, too, I mean, I think, you know, we could spend money today on a, uh, leasing space, right? Um, mm-hmm. I'd rather take those dollars and get it in the St. Louis community, right? And then when once we built up enough, you know, sort of enough core, then then it makes more sense. But I, I, we're we're so about getting in the community, engaging. Uh, we'd much rather do that, if you will.
1: And so. and if you're set up for at home, like the example I just gave, it this this could have been done effectively this way because it was going to be by Zoom anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but it was that you know, he normally had an office and he kept a lot of his stuff in that office. And then when he decides to be at home, he's handicapped in terms of his ability to get things done. If you set up as you've done during this five years, I mean, you're set up to provide the same level of service that you would otherwise.
2: Yeah, correct. So the it's a completely separate space in the house, completely set, set up. I have all my technology and uh, everything in there. Uh, so it's just I treat it just like a regular workday. Get up and go in and um, and do what I have to do. Zoom has made it a lot more easy. I think we've all been doing too many zooms over the last. Five years. Oh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> zooms uh, and teams and. But uh, I have 11x. to admit, I, you
1: get I get far more done with Zoom than I thought I could have. Hmm. I mean, if you told me a year ago that it could take me as far as it has, I wouldn't have thought so. But oh, two years ago.
3: It saves a lot of travel time too, it right? Does. I mean, between things, mm-hmm. you know. Obviously, being busy, it's it's it makes it tough. So I I have found it. I do like three you know three D interaction. You know, yeah. so, so I like the fifty fifty sort of mix, if you will. Um, you get some efficiency, but we we had uh we had acquired a client literally May of twenty twenty, so it was during the pandemic, and then all our meetings, subsequent meetings, were Zoom, and we finally got to meet them. They finally did a live fundraiser uh, last summer, like. Yeah, like we, oh, you're real. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
1: yeah. There's a three-dimensional. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, well, it's a pleasure, and we like to be able to turn our our audience on to people that we think uh, can meet their needs and um, and have a, a, an investment philosophy that's consistent with with people who are over sixty, which is a little different from. Somebody who's 30. Yep.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, for sure. Uh, or it should be. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes. definitely. laughs> no question. But anyway, so it's uh, Brett, If it, uh, we'll go ahead and put your contact information on the website. So if anybody wants to follow up, but Gelser is the firm. Yep, Gelser. Yep. yep. And they're going to hear a lot about yep. this, this it's investment. It's been a firm. pleasure
0: having both yeah, of you, thank gentlemen. Thank you very
1: much.
2: We really appreciate it.
1: This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care.
0: You've been listening to Life's Third Act a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit tuckerallen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.